we're all trying to reach an outcome and a goal and we should all be doing everything in our power to get there and, and working together is the only way that we will solve this problem. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. How you doing? Recording for the podcast. (sighs) Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Climactic, your story on climate change. I'm walking down the sidewalk in the city of Melbourne on my way to Smith Street in Fitzroy. For the next Act on Climate meeting for the mini-series we're doing leading up to the Victorian state election. This is a really appropriate place to be to intro this week's episode. Although you might not think it. This week it's all about the oceans. About ocean plastic and marine debris. And you might think, why is a busy city sidewalk the right place to talk about ocean pollution? It's because it's not what's in our oceans. That's the biggest problem. It's where that stuff in our oceans has come from, because it really doesn't belong there. Because there's a lot of stuff that ends up in our oceans, on our beaches, and in marine life. It's not from that habitat, but it actually comes from right here, city streets. This week I interviewed the founder of Tongaroa Blue, and they might not be the biggest ocean plastics cleanup outfit in Australia, but they are the most important. I heard about Tongaroa Blue when I was out on trash bags on tour. I noticed that the bags they were using to pick up rubbish along the Great Ocean Road had the Tongaroa Blue name and logo. So I asked Kat and Mel, the forces behind trash bags on tour, who this group was. And they told me that every bit of rubbish we're picking up on this day in fact, every other beach clean they'd run, they'd put all that data into a spreadsheet and submitted it to Tongaroa Blue. That's because these guys aren't just a beach cleanup outfit, but they're a database, the single largest database in Australia of what marine debris is found where. Since learning about Tongaroa Blue, I can't walk down a city sidewalk the same way anymore. I can't see a cigarette butt on the sidewalk on its way to a drain in a heavy rain and not think where that's going to end up. And I think you might be the same way as well after listening to this. So I hope you enjoy this, and that you, like me, get the chance sometime soon to put some beach rubbish into a Tongaroa blue bag. Once you know what that means, it's a really good feeling. Haiti, like H-A. Is that just the Australian... No, my mother's from Finland. Okay. And that's how they pronounce it. But it's, it's spelled Heidi, but... Hades means hell. Just oh. drop the S. That's how you pronounce it. <laughs> I don't know whether there's any relation there, but... <laughs> Taylor? Yes. Founder of Tongaroa Blue? Yeah. Founder and managing director. So from being a dive instructor for 20 years, I know it's a story you tell a lot about the formation of Tongaroa Blue, the foundation of it, creation myth mm-hmm. of your, <laughs> your reincarnation of the yes. Polynesian god of the sea. 
I've always been connected to the environment, even since I was a real little girl. And um, being a dive instructor was, I guess, part of that. And just starting to get really concerned by the amount of plastics and, and litter and debris that we were finding on our beaches and under the water. And I guess right from the beginning, it was like, why is it here? And how do we stop it from being here? Rather than just, let's keep collecting it. And it started off in the southwest corner of Western Australia in 2004 in a national park. And there was enough people around me at the time that were really connected to the ocean, either divers or fishermen or surfers. And yeah, when we first started our first cleanup and data collection and and then analysing that data, there was enough support to actually make it an organisation. And from there, we expanded to Queensland, to Victoria, and then lucky enough to get a little bit of money from the government in 2012-13 to create a national program, which is the Australian Marine Debris Initiative. And I just think that people connected because it was solution-based. It wasn't about cleaning and only cleaning, because if all we do is clean up, that's all we'll ever do. And sooner or later, you get disempowered and, and you feel overwhelmed if every time you go to the beach, you just find more and more rubbish. Eventually, you get to a point where you feel like it's pointless. So this was changing that activity of being a rubbish collector into actually becoming a marine debris CSI agent and contributing data, which is evidence, to, to push for change. Where did the idea come from to start to quantify what you were taking off, that data element? Where did that come from? My partner at the time was a surfer, and he'd go surfing and I'd go running, and I'd just come back with these armfuls of rubbish. And he said to me, you know, we should keep everything that you collect in six months in the backyard and then get the media to come and take photos of it. And uh, which was a great plan and we started to do that and then about three weeks into that plan the landlord turned up and said hey you know that get smell in the backyard yeah. <laughs> get rid of it and so the question was well how do we how do we quantify this how do we record and show people what we're doing and I did a quick online search and there was the Ocean Conservancy in the US that was doing marine debris. I took their data sheet and modified it. It really only captured some of the things we were finding, so we, we modified that and just started recording it and it ended up in a whole pile of Excel sheets. First workshop I held, a guy came there and, and he was someone that was really intrigued and loved data and he took all of the Excel sheets and created this database and he's still the database manager today. So it's evolved to, you know, the online portal, the app, um, all from a pile of Excel sheets. <laughs> so it goes to show if you've got, like, that industrious mate who looks like they're going places, go over, pick a job that they're doing that you think you'd enjoy, and then just stick with it and you'll make yourself a job. Absolutely. It's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. What a, what a great story. You mentioned quickly in kind of the origin of the group today that it took you six years from the creation of the foundation to your first kind of legal win, first kind of bit of tangible success to stemming the tide of new pollution that was entering the stream rather than just picking up rubbish forever. Did your diving background help with that sense of patience? Because said six years was really quick and we had people in the room who were, you know, from government said, wow, it only took you six years to get legislation passed. To me, I'm like, if I was doing something for six years until the first real win, I would have, I'd found it really hard to keep going. But like, I don't know. Is it there's some element of like you're you're you can't rush to the surface. You have to give time to decompress. Just you've got this sense of patience. I, I was pretty pretty stunned when people said that that was a quick process. But because for me the whole thing was a no brainer. We had evidence. We knew it was a problem, and we had an alternative. So it was a no brainer. But I guess government process, um, business process, individual process takes time, and it was about embracing that. And understanding, I think, which is a real key for everything we do now, is that everybody has a different driver on what they make their decisions on. 
And sometimes the conservation movement is really bad. We think that everybody cares about turtles. And not everybody does care about turtles, or not everybody can make a decision based on caring about turtles. And so for me, it became more of a bit of a, a chess game almost, is trying to discover the driver to enable people to make a decision. And in some case, it is an environmental decision, but in some case, it's a financial decision, or it could be an ego decision or a media decision. And it's about understanding what those decisions are and then taking your issue and your pitch and twisting it so it connects with their drivers. And for me, that's what the process is. That's why it takes time, is, is in some cases you'll hit that driver straight away, and in other cases you might have to try five or six different tacks before you, you get to the one that's going to go, I'm with you. And it doesn't really matter why people make a decision. If they get to where you're trying to take them, then you've got to win, and that, that takes time. So I, I have a bit of a saying now, which is to win in this space, you need to be persistent, you need to be consistent, and you need to do it with a smile. So that's a good formula for success. You're exhibiting all three of those aspects, which is great. <laughs> so it took six years for the first big legislative victory, but only 14 years to reach this point where you've got the Australian marine debris database, you've got multiple countries feeding data, and you've got multiple legislative wins across the board. And I see the Tongaroa Blue name and logo everywhere across the sustainability community. So six years probably felt like it took a long time, but can you believe you're here in just 14 years? No, not at all. And our goal wasn't to be here. It, it just, it organically grew. And the, the reason that we are here is because we did start small. You know, we, we were trying to tackle something that was achievable within a community group. And we just happened to come across and develop a methodology that worked, that was scalable. And so really, it doesn't matter whether we're dealing with something at an international level or a, a local level. The same methodology works. You need data. You need evidence. You need the right people at the table. You need expertise. And then you can start to formulate strategies that are going to work. You still need to measure them and monitor them to make sure that they're actually working, which is where the citizen science component connected. But it's a scalable model. And I guess that's why we, we grew, because we had these successes and then there was a lot of other communities that say, well, we, we want to try this as well. And it, and it became a, you know, it became a whole methodology. We have a small team. We don't have the capacity to be running cleanups and data collection activities across the country. And realistically, we don't need to. We just need to connect with those passionate people that are taking care of their patch and show them the value in connecting to a bigger picture. If we're all collecting data the same way, if we're all putting it into one place, it means we can all access it in one place. And it means that that data can be used in a real local context, which is what we were doing today. But we can also use it to push for state legislation, national legislation. Internationally, we can have conversations at that level too, because the scale of the data supports that. It's just it needs to be used at the right platform. One especially interesting thing I found this morning that I hope this is very replicable because this is really what excited me this morning was hearing about your Operation Clean Sweep that you're doing with industry, especially with plastic manufacturers who you wouldn't think of as natural allies. Operation Clean Sweep, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, this is an idea to start stemming the source of some of what was ending up on the beach, especially these, these raw plastic pellets or what we call nurdles that you needed to speak directly to manufacturers and get them on side. But what was that like in terms of how you change your mindset to speak to people in industry rather than, yeah, they're super passionate volunteers or council who are a lot more sort of plotting and methodical, but business who they can move fast, but they have to know very clearly the benefit for them in, in what you're asking them to do. 
What was that like kind of dealing with that very different mindset than either the volunteers or the government? So we had had this idea of bringing Operation Clean Sweep from America to Australia for a number of years, um, and we were just waiting for the right funding round to become available that would enable us to do that. And when that happened, it was a Little Hotspots program, and it, it was written for this program, so you know we were successful. I'm not an expert in the plastics industry, and we needed them to take all the resources to modify them to make them relevant to the Australian industry. So we needed their help. So they needed to understand from us straight away that we weren't trying to close the plastics industry. We weren't trying to ban plastics. And again, it, it comes back to that whole context of drivers. It, it took me a lot of a lot of phone calls to try and meet the people that I needed to meet in the industry because they were very sceptical. To be honest, I think that the first meeting that I had, they were expecting someone with dreadlocks and armpit hair and a band plastic T-shirt on, and I turned up in a suit. And the look on this person's face was, was amazing because they automatically thought, I can have a conversation. And I didn't talk about the environment. I talked to them about them losing a resource that they pay for, about increasing workplace health and safety because people weren't going to slip over these little beads and about potential fines through the EPA Mm. and the social license that these companies have to operate. I didn't talk about the environmental because that's not the driver. And through that, we were able to engage the industry really quickly. Getting the industry to actually adopt the program and sign on, that was a different matter. And and I guess one of the the barriers that we had was actually getting through to the decision makers in a company. And so we utilised, again, some of the big industry players. And once we got to the decision makers, they made a decision in a five-minute pitch. This was a no-brainer for them. And when we tried then to reach other business members, we leveraged off their contacts to get our meetings. It was about them understanding what we were trying to achieve. For me, it was an environmental outcome. But for them, there was a financial and there was an occupational health and safety outcome. And for them, that was a no-brainer. Operation Clean Sweep is an industry program that looks at reducing the loss of plastic resin pellets through transportation and through manufacturing through the plastics industry. We want you to play our part in the industry in minimising the loss of plastic pellets into the environment. By signing up to Operation Clean Sweep, that fulfilled our objective. The loss of plastic resin pellets into the environment is of growing concern. Plastics make up over 75% of marine debris that's floating in our oceans, and this is a really easy way to prevent some of that from occurring. Craig's Films was one of the first companies to sign up to Operation Clean Sweep in Australia, and they've been a great champion educating the rest of the industry as to why it's important to adopt this program and actually how easy it's been for them as well. The pellets that we were receiving and sending out on our truck were quite often heavily contaminated with beads. We realised very early on in our audit that if we put loose pellets into our commercial bin, which is emptied by a commercial company, those pellets actually fall from the bin and into the environment. So now what we do is we actually bag all of the pellets that we sweep up within the factory and that bag is sealed before it goes into the commercial bin. We identified the major source of contamination in our forecourt was actually pallets that were being delivered by our suppliers. The transport companies would send a flatbed truck that was virtually covered in tiny pellets, which had moved all the way from Altona across the Westgate Bridge to Brayside. So we contacted all of the transport companies and the uh, polymer suppliers and informed them that since we were part of Operation Clean Sweep, we would no longer receive trucks that contained damaged pallets 
Operation Clean Sweep was very easy to implement using the uh, self-audit that's in the manual. It has not had any financial impact on the company in any way. We see a benefit in occupational health and safety and we're doing our bit for the environment. For a company to sign up to Operation Clean Sweep, they just need to head to the website and they can download a manual and a checklist. Then it's just a matter of going through and seeing if they are losing any pellets and implementing practices to stop that from occurring. They can take the pledge both at a business and an individual level and then they're part of the program. It doesn't cost anything and it's really easy. to. So it is possible. You can work with industry to solve sustainability issues. You just have to go about it in a smart way, the right way. Be seen as a peer. Don't come in assuming every Everyone cares about turtles and is going to make decisions based on that. So I know we don't have very much time here, but that's a good kind of overview of what Tongaro Blue is. And there's a lot of really good information about the group out there. So listeners can can check you out more specifically about how climate change interacts with this and how people that can get involved with your group, if they kind of share my feeling that, that climate change is the most pressing thing we should be doing, especially this generation. I feel like we are like that tipping point generation. Here's my thinking on what you guys are doing and how it relates to climate change. And please correct me if it, this is not how you think as well. Ocean pollution, especially plastic pollution, just marine debris is another symptom of the same problem that's causing global warming and causing climate change. It's disposability, it's lack of long-term thinking. But I'm kind of scared that ocean plastic and marine debris solving that problem may not necessarily solve the global warming situation. So I'm, I'm a little scared about it, honestly, where it's full of really smart, well-intentioned, excellent people, but they're they're chasing a symptom right now when the root cause is is kind of eating away at us and the host may not survive it. That may be wrong. It may be that by solving marine debris in a short-term, amazingly comprehensive way, we'll show that we've got the ability to then solve global warming. But what I saw today and, and everything we talked about, it, it didn't reinforce that for me. Instead, made me worry even more because the time horizons for fixing marine debris are long and they're they're longer than a couple of decades. They might be longer than half a century. And by that stage, global warming alone will have rendered a lot of the problems we're facing with debris in the ocean. By that stage, ocean acidification or just the increase in ocean temperature will have... A lot of the damage that could be caused by marine debris will have already been caused by ecological conditions. So I'm kind of depressive about the whole thing, honestly. So I started the show trying to talk to people who are more optimistic and hopeful than me to give me some some encouragement. Please tell me I'm wrong. I, I agree, and I would, I would probably go even further, that marine debris is a symptom, and it's a symptom of, of a lot of things, and it can't be solved in isolation. For example, if you look at our diabetes rates and our health rates, it's because what we eat, and what we eat is overpackaged, it's connected. If we look at climate change, we know that increasing numbers of extreme weather events is going to put more and more items in, into the water that's connected to climate change. If we think about our energy use, that's connected to climate change and it's also connected to what we're making and selling and transporting. And we can't, we can't solve this problem by looking at it in one thing, with one thing. It's like solving a human health issue by giving them multivitamins. It's, it's not going to happen. So it is complex, but like the marine debris issue, we can't solve marine debris by looking at it as an overarching issue. We need to tackle it by item by item, location, location. 
And then from there, we build these building blocks that get us to the top of solving marine debris. And I think that we need to do that with all the other symptoms, but they need to be connected together. Otherwise, we just target one thing that might not actually solve the big issues that we're, we're trying to do. My concern is that those connections don't exist or they're not strong enough to, to exist, like what happened today in the workshop. There's so many different government agencies, community groups and, and other organisational bodies that are trying to deal with the same issue and there's very little connection between them all. Nobody knows what the left and the right hand are doing and that's very similar to climate change as well. So we need to connect. One of the platforms that we're trying to work through is with the Sustainable Development Goals through the UN because there's 17 of those goals and they do connect to a lot of the issues that need to be looked at to solve all of the issues, which gives us an outcome at the end, rather than just trying to connect with one or two. Well, why does this excite you and why have you spent 14 years now fighting it? I guess I connected with it because I, I saw what it was doing in an environment which meant a lot to me, and that was in the ocean. And I felt that I needed to do something. In 2004, when I started talking about marine debris, people thought I was talking about driftwood. They had no concept that there was a problem with plastics in our ocean. The vocabulary wasn't there yet. No. Now, if you walk down the street and ask 10 people, at least nine of them will know there's ocean plastics. So we've come a long way since then. The initial connection was because that environment meant a lot to me. It's where I earned my money, but it's also where I spent my leisure time as well. So I, I felt that I, I needed to do something and nobody was really having this discussion at the time. I guess what excites me about it now is that out of all of the environmental issues and, you know, with climate change being on the top of it, this one should be the most simple to fix because this is about changing very basic things that every human person is doing. Out of all of the environmental issues, I think that we've got a better chance at solving this one. I would love to go back to diving and not picking up other people's rubbish anymore. With the right strategy and the right framework and the right partners, we can solve this issue. And there are other issues that I'm not sure whether we can solve or not immediately solve. So I guess that's what what drives me. And once we start to get wins and we start to develop these strategic partners that are not necessarily the normal partners that you would see in a conservation platform, we start to see that there's some real traction in this mm. in this way that we're doing things. And that gives me hope. That's what keeps me excited. I imagine a world in which there's no more marine debris. There's no more stuff washing up on our shores anymore or any shores. I think of what that world actually looks like that's caused that. That means disposability is gone as a consideration. That means that waterways are healthy. Wow, what a, what a world that would look like. So that's the way that we get to no debris is all those other issues have been addressed and fixed as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I mean about it all having to be connected and how it's all interlinked. And we won't have the big wins that we want unless we are looking at how this all connects together. And just as much effort is being put into each of those components. I think that that's really important to acknowledge. We need to be more focused on investing in the source reduction side of things. There's a lot of money currently being thrown at clean up projects. And, and while we will need to continue to clean up for a very long time, because there's already plenty of stuff out there, if we're not investing twice as much in source reduction, then the investment in the cleanup is a bad investment. Can I get like a canonical answer from, from you of what is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Look, I think back in the day when people started talking about this floating island, the media did an amazing way of connecting with people in something they can visualize um, how inaccurate it was. Um, it still connected people with the issue. Now I prefer to tell people it's like plastic soup. Most of it's not on the surface. Most of it's fragmented and, and sitting throughout the water column, and it's like a soup. 
or a smog, and the majority of it is small. It's less than five mils. So you don't actually see the big chunky items as the majority item. It's the smaller fragmenting, breaking up items that will continue to fragment and continue to get smaller and that sits all through the water column. Yikes. Sea smog is a really good word for it. That's You can visualize that pretty easily. So Heidi, do you still eat seafood? I eat seafood that I catch and I catch enough for me to eat or for my family to eat and I know where it comes from, but otherwise I, I don't eat it. Yeah. Do you worry at all personally about microplastic pollution in, in your food supply? Oh, look, I'm sure that every possible chemical that is going to come into the human body is already in my body through every other source as well. I don't see it as a risk in excess of anything else. You put creams on your body, we, we breathe air, we have all of these other chemicals that are going into our body. So is that another one? Absolutely. Is it probably already in my system? Probably. So it's not worth extra worry about. (laughs) Well, the amount of seafood I eat, which is rare because I don't get to get out there and and get it so often anymore, is quite small. When we start to look at body burden tests on people's tissues and, and the toxins that they're absorbing, it is of concern. And we know that for a lot of communities that predominantly eat seafood, a lot of third world countries, island communities, we know that that potentially is going to cause problems because these toxins are endocrine disruptors and they start to affect fertility. And so I think it will be extremely ironic in, you know, 50 years' time if we start to have these real reproduction problems as a species because we have so much toxins in our body that come from the fish that we ate because we couldn't dispose of our rubbish properly. I think that that will be an ironic outcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Heidi. I've really enjoyed doing it. She's a remarkable lady, so inspiring. And she was down here in Melbourne for like nine back-to-back days of these catch-up workshops with groups that had put in place source reduction plans last year. It was amazing to hear the report back from people in the community. So fair warning, if you go along to one of these, you might find yourself involved in something. But I was really impressed with the way that Heidi took my question about prioritizing ocean plastics over climate change action. She's completely right that everything's connected. And the success that Tongaroa Blue has been able to have in just 14 short years of being around is really incredible. And I think inspiring. And I think where we got to in our conversation is really correct. That if we can fix ocean plastics, if we can stop people mindlessly throwing away disposable things, stopping them from buying them in the first place, wrap our heads around the idea of source reduction, I think that is one of the ways we're going to change society. So I was really inspired talking to Haiti, and I really hope you liked it too. If you want to hear more stories about Tongaro Blue, marine debris, ocean plastics in the future, please do just let us know at hello at climactic.fm. And if you've got a story in your local community that needs to be told, please let us know. All right, folks, have a lovely week, and we'll see you next time. The Climactic Collective. Collective.